It's Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Jonesing for Jessica. Uh, this is going to be a show that's going through Jessica Jones, Marvel and Netflix, Jessica, Jessica Jones, episode by episode, to discuss it. Um, joining me, as always, is Alana. How are you doing? What's on tap this episode? Hey, I'm great. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Um, so today we're going to be focused on episode two of the show. Uh, just so folks understand our concept, we are going to be only discussing episodes one and two, but with an emphasis on episode two. Uh, our, our, our belief for the podcast is to limit the in-depth conversations to the episode that is in the title of this episode. So if you've only seen through episode two, you're in totally good to go. Um, and you don't have to have seen anything past episode two. But be warned, this entire episode is a big spoiler for episode two of the show, so take it with that in mind. Um, And so, yes, if you're listening to this, you should have watched episode one and two of Jessica Jones. Yes. And I want to thank you, uh, by the way, to everybody who's been really supportive of promoting this podcast because we've really seen it take off, so thank you. We've had some awesome uh, feedback and lots of people listening, so really, really psyched about that. Uh, so the second episode of Jessica Jones is entitled uh, Crush Syndrome, and Jessica vows to prove Hope's innocence, even though it means tracking down a terrifying figure from her own past. One of the cool things of the uh, each episode is that we've got a guest joining us, and Alyssa Rosenberg is uh, our guest tonight. Uh, she's the culture columnist for the opinion section of the Washington Post. Alyssa is... Hopefully, hopefully she's the one I accepted. I, I'm not quite sure I didn't get a chance. To I'm here. I threw you the no and I was like, oh my god, knowing my luck, it's not her, and I just put some random person on. Uh, <laughs> thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah, uh, I've been so- a huge fan of Alyssa's stuff since she was writing for, I think, Progress's website many, many moons ago, and uh, we've been wanting to have her on the podcast for a while, and I'm really happy to make it happen for Jessica Jones, which is such an illicit sort of a show, actually. So, <laughs> um, oh, sorry, I totally said the bio. You should probably, <laughs> um, like when I thought about the kinds of shows that I thought you'd have a lot to say about, this was really high up on the list. I also realized that I just completely interrupted your bio that Brett was doing, so Brett, why don't you finish that so our listeners know who we've got on? Okay, uh, so Alyssa <laughs> is the culture columnist for the opinion of the Washington Post. Nice, short, sweet, easy. Um, just general, I, I guess the, the great question to figure out like, where you're coming from, because we've, you know, uh, Alana and I have talked at least one episode so far. Uh, have you seen the whole series, or are you kind of going episode by episode so far, Alyssa? Um, my husband and I watched the whole show the weekend before Thanksgiving. We sort of got started and couldn't quite stop. So I've seen all the way to the end. I've written pieces about the show that address it all the way to the end, but I found it to be very well behaved tonight. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you've also read the comics as well, right? Uh, yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Great, Excellent. great. We are, we are uh, in, yeah, uh, you know, I, I have read the comics, but it was a long time ago. Brett's read the comics, so... But we're definitely not the kind of folks who believe that a show needs to match the comics or parallel them in any way, shape, or form. It, you know, it's got to live or die or stand on its own, really. So, absolutely. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of 
said that you've watched a whole bunch of it, so I'm guessing you've generally enjoyed the show. Um, big picture, like, what is your impression so far of the first and second episode? Trying not to spoil the rest, but I know it's sometimes it's Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting, you know, it's one thing I would say about Netflix shows in general, and I'm assuming both of you have watched Daredevil, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, my sense is that the Marvel shows are much less episodic than something like Supergirl or The Flash or any of the other TV sh- um, standard, you know, non-streaming TV shows that Marvel's done so far. And one of the things that Daredevil and Jessica Jones have in common is the way the seasons sort of tell one long story. It's much fewer one-off, case of the week types of things. And so it's it's interesting to see, you know, the show kind of start, you know, start from the very beginning, pulling us into this long arc plot and into this sort of identification between Jessica and Hope Schlotman that we see in the first episode. Um, but I appreciate the way that the show uses, uses the Jessica's PI business to pull us into the larger story. So you've got the elements of genre, and then we start to learn more about who Jessica is, who the sort of big opponent might be. It's a nice build over those first two episodes. Mm. I was really struck um, at how much each episode, and again, I've only seen the first two, stands as something where there's a clear beginning, middle, and the end of the episode. Like each of those two episodes, at least, it it poses sort of a mini mystery within the mystery for her to solve. Yeah, exactly. And it also does a pretty good job sort of setting up the world, right? I mean, we see, mm-hmm. you know, Jessica working for Jerry Hogarth. We see her relationship with Trish Walker, even if we don't really know what binds the two of them together. You have Hope, who's this object of identification. And then you've also got Luke Cage, so you've got the sort of neighborhood context as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think that's really interesting is the first two episodes have really focused on Jessica. It's not till the last few minutes of this episode, and we'll talk about it probably a little bit later, that we even see, like, the bad guy at all. Like, he's kind of been in the, in the shadows a little bit, and, you know, we've kind of seen him, like, hovering and, and while she's kind of, like, hallucinated hearing him or seeing him. But, you mm-hmm. know, it's also... It's taken this long, you know, almost two hours for us to even the bad guy in, like, really any solid way whatsoever, which is very, I think, very different than uh, a lot of shows out there. Absolutely. Well, I think there's a tendency, I mean, if you've read Save the Cat, which is this very influential book that explains how Hollywood screenwriting works, the villain in your standard Hollywood movie or really sort of Hollywood storytelling period is that the villain is always the hero's double, right? He is his opposite, his reverse. And you notice that I'm using he because it's almost always two dudes who are on opposite sides of this power struggle. <laughs> and what's interesting here is that, you know, the villain, such as we've seen him, isn't really Jessica's double in any way, right? And so rather than looking at him to understand her better, right, rather than looking at him as her antithesis, this these first couple of episodes really announced that this is a show about Jessica and what happened to her. And the villain is interesting in so much as he tells us, you know, more about Jessica's experiences, but he's not in and of himself 
necessarily this fascinating character really early in the show. Um, you know, he's not, he is someone who happened to Jessica, and that's why he's interesting. But the series is really completely centered on her stopping him. Um, sure, absolutely. But, you know, I think that what's important is, like, that's her journey, right? It's not that we want to get, that we're necessarily going to get fascinated by him. He's not, you know, he's not someone like Loki, who's bad in, in you know, the Avengers movies, whose badness comes from, just from the fact that he's opposed to our heroes, right? I mean, he is, Kilgrave in Jessica Jones is, so he is clearly evil. There's not ambiguity. There is not, you know, sort of conflict ginned up for the sake of conflict. We know really early that this is a bad person who has done bad things. He's not just another side of Jessica's character. And so, mm. yes, he obviously plays a very important role in the story, but he's not a mirror image of Jessica in some way, right? And he's not mm-hmm. sort of interesting for his own sake. He's interesting in the way that his story crosses paths with Jessica. She is she is really the hero, right? This is not some balanced story. This is not an ensemble story. You know, mm-hmm. yes. David Tennant's performance is that as sort of a co-lead, but in terms of, the sh- you know, the show is interested in Jessica, right? I think she's more sort of centered than, you know, than your typical face-off between, you know, Loki and Thor or Iron Man and um, um, and my brain is gone. I'm sorry, guys. What is, <laughs> I, have sinus, I have a sinus headache. One of his so many note <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. But it's not, you know, Kilgrave is not sort of another aspect of Jessica's personality, right? So it's not, mm. he is a genuine villain in a way. Mm-hmm. He's a villain rather than just a pure opponent, if that distinction makes any sense. Yes. And it's interesting because I suspect that he thinks that she's just an extension of him since that's how he treats everybody. But in reality, uh, no, that's not how humans work, asshole. So that's kind of what makes him the villain. Yeah. This is this um, is the well, territory where I don't want to give anything away. Have yes, you know, I, yeah. right, I know. It's like, I'm like, I don't want to spoil things. This is just based on my observation, but... Okay. So, um, yeah, I you know, one of the things I just wanted to talk real quickly, because I don't feel like we talked about it much about episode one, is generally the, the aesthetic of the show, I, I was sitting down to, my my, uh, my dad hadn't seen the series yet, and I was sitting down with, to have him watch it with me over the holiday, and his first comment was, this is really dark and I can't see anything. Uh, and his, mm. his second thought was, are they doing that so they don't have to show all the background? And of course, I'm like, well, that's not actually, this is like, a sh- this is being shot like on location. So that's not really the issue here. So with sci-fi dad, you might be onto something, but no, this is an aesthetic choice about trying to be noir. And of course, that's just how it felt to me. That's how I saw it instantly. But it was, it was interesting to me to hear from somebody who I should also just mention is kind of low vision. Um, how like that was just, he just like almost couldn't get past how hard it was for him to see and how dark it was. Whereas for me, I was like, yeah, it's dark, it's noir, but it's a color show. So to make a noir Thing, work in black and white. They're just going to sort of desaturate the colors, have a lot of darkness. Did you guys have any thoughts around that? Um, it's not, again, like, this is something where I feel like the world opens up visually in subsequent episodes, so mm, it's a little yeah. difficult for me to discuss it as sort of okay. a pure stylistic choice. Um, I do think that, you know, that's something not just that it's noir, but that it sort of has in common 
with Daredevil, which is, again, it's like a very dark, grainy show. There's a lot of rain, and there's a lot of stuff happening at night. Um, and I think some of that is a way to sort of communicate what's supposed to be the oppressiveness of Hell's Kitchen. Um, I think one thing that I have not particularly loved about Daredevil and that I don't see Jessica Jones necessarily does much better is actually like building out the world, right? I mean, these are supposed to be these stories set in this very specific interconnected neighborhood, and we get almost mm-hmm. no sense of that. I mean, you know, there's nothing that makes Hell's Kitchen Hell's Kitchen in, Dare, in Daredevil, right? There, And I don't know that Jessica Jones ultimately does a much better job with that. Um, mm-hmm. Which is sort of a, which is, you know, it was something that really bummed me out about Daredevil and that it contributed to me finding that to me, finding that show not terribly interesting. And I think you get like, mm. a little bit more sense of the neighborhood, but the way that, you know, Marvel seems to be communicating that this is, like, it's dark, it's gritty, it's, you know, midtown, so it's always, you know, November, and it's always rainy, and it's always, mm-hmm. you know, 7 o'clock in the evening, right? It's, there's this very deliberate sort of, I often feel, I guess I feel like the lighting and color scheme is sort of in place of world building. Um, And frankly, it also makes action easier to choreograph, right? You don't need to CGI as much stuff. Everything's a little bit more obscured. Um, So it's it's kind of a cheapo choice on Netflix part, I think. Um, Hmm. That said, I thought thought the action choreography in this episode was really good. Um, And that that was one thing I was hoping we could talk about. You know, when you've got the bar Mm -hmm. fight scene, one of the things that I love about it is the way that you know, my culture is Luke Cage is just batting people away completely effortlessly, right? I mean, this is it's the one of the first sets of action choreography that I've seen that really communicates what it would be like for a super powered person to come up against people with no powers. Mm-hmm. The Marvel movies tend to have super powerful people facing off against each other in some form or another. So even though they are super powered, the action choreography is is fairly conventional. And it was really fun to just see how casual and sort of Luke Cage was and how little effort both he and Jessica had to expend to take down this group of people who were attacking them. I thought that was just a really smart, subtle thing for the show to do. Yeah, great point, great point. We also don't see these characters Um, in the other films take on, like, normal people. So I think that also kind of emphasized, and it's, you know, how easy it is for them to do these sort of things to, like, on everyday levels. Um, yeah. But the thing that was really great about that particular scene was it's a way to, one, introduce their powers more so to us, um, especially with Gage. Yeah. You know, if you don't read the comics, you might not ne- necessarily know who he is, and introduce them to each other, because you could see him, like, watching yeah. each other, like, what the hell's going on here? Um and it's a really kind of a cute way to kind of do all these things really effortlessly and easy. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and I thought, you know, and I agree with you in terms of it, sort of then in terms of the way that section introduces them to each other. I thought that was really smart because in part because they don't have to worry too much about who they're fighting. They can watch yep. each other, Right. And that's mm-hmm. part of what's interesting about that scene. They're not, you know, belaying Captain America's shield around or, you know, dealing with 10,000 people. The fight is almost, you know, sort of incidental. It's, just, it's not a big thing. I, it also made me think just about how much I loved the ending of episode two where you sort of have 
you know, Luke shows up in her office to like sort of confront her, like that she has powers, he has powers. And the look of horror on her face when he's demonstrating with a circular saw was like... Yes! Pretty it's extreme. A pretty, it's a pretty badass way well, to introduce like, yourself to, like, a character and their powers, though. Like, that was well, a pretty, and it's pretty sexy, intro. too, right? I mean, like, yeah, you know, yeah. Luke, one of the things that's fun about that scene is Luke knows what he's doing, right? Like, he's not messing around. He's, like... You know, he's he's giving her the goods. Like he's giving her that, you know, that ab shot. Um, mm-hmm. It's so funny. You know, it's like it's superhero flirtation. It's great. Yeah, yeah, and I and, and I the line "You can't fix me, I'm unbreakable" is so oh. amazing. That's going to be on everybody's yeah. T-shirt, basically. Like, yeah. and it's so funny no, it's because amazing. I think. You know, Jessica, like with Jessica, you have the question of does she think that she's broken? And I think the answer is yes. Um, so perhaps him identifying himself as not even being pot capable of being broken is mm. an additional point of attraction for her. Yeah. At the same time, though, I imagine that kind of invulnerability is a little unnerving for her, right? I mean, Mm-hmm. If you have been victimized by someone who has such complete and utter control, you know, what could someone with a whole different set of sort of invulnerabilities do to you? And that is probably why she looks a bit horrified. Maybe. I, mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily interpret her as horrified in that scene. Oh, I, I, that's how I read her face. You thought it was like yeah. intrigued or... I think there was an initial horror of, like, this dude's taking a circular st- saw to his, like, stomach, and you kind of look a little horrified. I think any normal person would look a little horrified at first, but I think eventually she she figures out what's up and is like, oh, no, things are fine, and he's not about to cut open his abdomen. I mean, I'd be freaked out. Yeah, I mean... What's going to happen? <laughs> she, could be, she could be worried that he's so great, right? Like, that's yeah. potentially uh, one yeah, yeah, for that reaction. Can, you know, she's... We've, we've talked about the end. I kind of want to talk about the beginning because the beginning I think is really fascinating in that the episode opens up with her in the police station talking to a police officer going over Hope's situation. And her whole thing yeah. is like, I want to get out of here. And for me, I, I, I got a sense of, you know, Mar- and the thing that Marvel is, I think, been doing a lot, it does a lot with the series that's, that's really interesting is that it plays off of the, you know, the victim, the, uh, you know, sexual assault victim, and that they're not believed. And the, the series does that really, really well. And I think that scene really emphasizes that because you can see her being like, why am I bothering even telling the story? You're not going to believe me anyway. It's, I just want to go and get mm-hmm. the hell out of here. What, what's the point of being here? Which to me yeah. played a lot off of like that, which is like a recurring thing throughout the series. Um, and I think this is like, you know, we got it a little bit in the first episode, but this is really, I think, the first time we see it with her and, you know, another person of authority who could help her. Yeah. At the same time, though, that fits into one of the things that I think is interesting and maybe a little under-discussed with the show, which is that there are good reasons for Detective Clemens not to believe her, right? I mean, this is a really strange situation. You know, Kilgore's powers are not the kind of thing that are plausible to anyone. Like, they are a wonderful metaphor for consent and and incapacitation. But it also, it's not entirely unfair that someone would not believe her, right? Like, it's not a completely irrational thing that, you know, 
a detective might be, or, you know, Jerry Hogarth might be skeptical of the version of the story that Jessica's telling. It's, that's not an unreasonable thing. In a similar way, mm-hmm. the fact that Kilgrave can just remove people's consent, right? Like, he's he's a walking date rape drug, effectively, right? Mm-hmm. He's a date rape drug in human form. Um, the fact that he can, that there's a really clear line between being Kilgrave and not being Kilgrave means that, you know, we can sort of assess Jessica's own weird decision separately, right? Like, her, you know, even when she's drinking really heavily, we don't, we think of those that, that as like a choice that she's making rather than something that's being done to her by peer pressure or anything else. And so I think the way the series is set up um, sort of opens up some space to talk about, you know, women's choices and things that they do of their own free will or, you know, the way that the police respond or what they believe or what they don't in a mm-hmm. way, like it creates some space for discussing those things in a way that I think cultures around, the culture around sexual assault and the conversation around the left doesn't always right now. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, one of the, one of the, the interesting framing devices for the episode was the cockroach um, metaphor in the beginning and then at the end of the episode. Uh, and I wrote in my notes that, like, okay, the cockroach is Kilgrave, but there's also something, like, about that sort of resilience that made us, at first in her bathroom, I was like, is she the cockroach? But when she crushes at the yeah. end, this is clearly, clearly Kilgrave. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk about one, also, one, one theme about the, that's a really big one in this episode, which is safety and what makes somebody safe. Because you have you know, Trish makes various gestures to try to help Jessica be safe. And these gestures are sweet, but they are completely not helpful in any way. You know, one of her gestures is completely triggering to Jess when she has a man show up in her apartment to fix the, uh, to fix the door. That's, you know, Trish mm-hmm. trying to help, but actually triggering her. And then you have Trish, you know, doing something which seems more pragmatic and reasonable, which is like learning how to fight. And you see her learning how to fight and being awesome, and then it goes immediately from that scene of Trish learning how to fight and kicking ass, and you see Kilgrave entering the, her, the neighbor's apartment and showing how completely useless this attempt to try to make yourself physically safe is in the face of powers like his. Um, and I took that as such a metaphor for like how people are always saying, oh, if you're a woman, you should just, just take self-defense. If you take self-defense, you'll be safe. Or if you don't wear a certain yeah, shirt and go out and you face. I mean, I feel like we, we at this point in the series, we don't entirely know what it is that Trish is afraid of, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there are implications that there is something that has happened to Trish that is not necessarily the same thing that happened to Jessica. And so I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant to say that it's sort of that exact right, that, like, Trisha's training is being treated like it's useless or, you know, I mean, I don't know, that strikes me. I, I just feel like what the show is doing is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, mm. You know, it's, again, this is me getting to the point where I'm, a little, you know, I can't say everything that sure, sure. I want to say. <laughs> but okay. I, I no, mean, that's fine. <laughs> they're just sort of, given what we've seen of the show, what, what's fair game to discuss, I think what's going on with Trish is like a little bit more 
complicated there. And, you know, part of what's interesting gotcha. about this thing with the door, right, is that, you know, um, Je- you know, Jessica, you know, freaks out when those guys are in her apartment, but she's also created a situation where, like, anyone can be in her apartment any time by, like, basically refusing to fix things, right? And so <laughs> she, yeah. I mean, she almost is looking for, I mean, to a certain extent, you can interpret her behavior as, like, looking for opportunities for confrontation, right? Like, she has not done the sort of sensible, minimal thing. Like, yeah, Kilgrave could order a locksmith to show up and, like, pick her lock um, or could order her landlord to open the door. But, you know, she she has basically, like, just let it be broken for a long time. And there's something yeah. interesting about her refusal to do something that, you know, even if it wouldn't protect her against the most dangerous thing in her life, could protect her against, like, unpleasant surprises or inconvenience. Um, and that willingness to sort of marinate in the wreckage of her apartment is just kind of interesting to me. Um, huh. I mean, especially given her own feelings about brokenness, right? Like, her door is broken. She refuses to fix this basic thing that would, like, keep people out of her apartment and make her look more professional. Um, and there's that, there is that sort of willingness to kind of linger in the wreckage that is her own life and business that I think is interesting. Hmm. The, the, door, the door I thought was interesting for Kovac is one, I, I took it at times that it was almost like her being like, you know what, I just want Kilgrave to get here and just get this over with, where it was just, no, yeah. I'm just going to go before he gets me. And then the other is I thought there was a fascinating comparison because I'm pretty sure it's this episode where Trish mentions the safe room, which is, yeah. very, you know, a, a door to the safe room is a, kind of a key thing and you've got this kind of comparison of a door that is, like, clearly destroyed, easy to get in, where Trish is just like, no, with the super powerful door that it's going to be possible to get in. Um, that those two things, like, compared to each other, it's just, it's interesting that they come up and it's mentioned, I think, really within, you know, maybe a couple minutes of each other uh, yeah. in the episode. Mm-hmm. No, I think mm-hmm. that's true. And, I mean, it's, you know, Trish in general is someone who you know, takes better care of herself than Jessica does, you know. She has this, you know, high-profile career that she's created for herself. She works out. She's not drunk all the time. Um, (laughs) You know, she is, and it's one of those things where even if that doesn't necessarily protect her from all potential harm, it does mean that she is a healthier person than Jessica is, even if she's not necessarily always safe the kind of thing that she'd like to avoid. Mm, yeah. Uh, I, I also wanted to talk about, you know, Jessica says that she's acting like her mom and how much she recoils from that. I think there's a yeah. couple of things about crazy moms or moms who are being disparaged that's sort of a theme in this episode as well. Um, you know, we don't really have anything at this point to know, like, why someone acting like their mom might be an insult here. But it is something that people say as an insult, generally speaking, to people in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I've I've certainly seen that happen. Yeah, um, I, I will. Say, I watched yeah. the episode with my wife, and she winced at that line. She's like, "Oh, that's a hell of an insult," and I just I kind of laughed yeah. at it. I'm like, "All right, clearly it's as bad as I thought it was based off of her reaction." Yeah, no, it's like fucked up and normal and sad. 
in a way that that's like, oh my yeah. god, anything but anything but my mom. That's the worst thing I could possibly <laughs> be. Whatever. And although well, there's also this image of sort of parental ineffectiveness, you know, when Jessica mm. goes and tracks mm-hmm. down the guy that Kilgrave forced to donate his kidneys, you know, you have this sort of mother figure who, you know, is sort of fussy and rhetorically protective, but like couldn't stop her son from doing something completely insane. Yeah, her whole thing was a bit of a horror reveal. I mean, like the way they bring you into the house and then you see the house and you see the intensity of the religious iconography. And I'll say, as someone who's done canvassing a lot, I've been in plenty of houses that have that level (laughs) of intensity of Catholic memorabilia. Like, that's not something I see every day, but it certainly wasn't something that I saw and said, holy crap, that's crazy. But um, I felt like it was shown to be a reveal where we're supposed to look at that and say, holy crap, that's crazy. Um, I don't know, maybe I've just been, like, working in New York for a long time, but but that was definitely another, you know, that mother, she's clearly done a terrible thing in her care of her son um, and is delusional. And I don't don't know if you have anything you wanted to to add on that, but I definitely felt like there was supposed to be, like, a bit of a horror reveal like almost like something for misery where like you go inside the house of horrors and you see, you know, the man who's suffering, the whole kill me versus kill grave, by the way, I smelled that a mile away when that happened, which I'm not complaining about because it was perfect. Like had it yeah. been any other way, I would have been disappointed, but I was sort of like, oh, she's going to think he's going to say kill grave and he's going to be saying kill me. Um, yeah, and that was definitely very eerie. I think you nailed it that about the horror aspect of it. I mean, it's a thing... Um, that was about the show, and that I think it's got uh, its feet in many different genres at times. And this was almost a, a reiteration of like, no, we, we are doing horror at at certain points in this in this series, which is something that hasn't really been done in a Marvel film up to this, you know, any live thing up to this point. It's all been fairly, you know, superhero uh, genre. Where this is like, nope, we're kind of busting away from the superhero. We're we're straight uh-huh. up doing horror at times. Um, and I think you see it again at the end of the episode when Kilgrave, you know, makes his grand entrance, um, where it's like another emphasis of like, nope, we're doing horror. Yeah, no, um, I really, I, I enjoy that aspect of the series. And one of the things that I think is interesting, even through the first couple of episodes, is the way that you have a lot of shots where things are slightly askew, like, there'll be a shot of a where a wall meets a ceiling or something, and everything's not quite at right angles. And so there's a lot of the cinematography that makes everything feel just much uneasier in a way that I think is really mm. interesting. Mm. I, I, I have something I'm really confused about, and you guys might have a read on me. I, what the heck is up with Jessica's upstairs neighbors? Like, I cannot figure out. And if the answer is it's in a future episode, then that's fine. But I'm just like, I don't even understand what's going on with her neighbors. Yeah, um, is it is it spoilery for me to say that like that whole subplot kind of is not good and does not get yeah. better? I was going to say that okay, too. Okay, that's, like, that's that's good to yeah. know. <laughs> oh well, I, that out I of everything the series baffled. will probably irritate you. Yeah, gotcha. I mean the the, I con- would, yeah. the the conclusion that husband and I reached having watched the whole series is that the A and B characters and like the A and B plots are always really strong in the episodes, but the like, the C-plots and the C-characters are, it's just they're the big weak point of the show, and they don't really get better or more interesting. Yeah. Got it, got it. 
I just literally could not understand what the exact scenario was, but I felt like the show wanted me to. I felt like the show assumed that I understood what was going on there, and I'm like, hi, I really don't. Um, although, I yeah, know, I, think I mean, I guess that's Hogarth, Hogarth is a B character, wouldn't you say, maybe? Hogarth? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think Hogarth, Trish. Yeah. Yeah. So the the thing is with the with the with the brother and sister and also with Hogarth and even Jessica with Luke, I think part of it is the series attempting to explore different aspects of control. Um mm. and and having you try to debate like is one worse than the other or are they all bad or is there a whole bunch of gray area? Um, and I think that's a bit more apparent as the series goes on, but we kind of see that here of like another, this person's trying to control this person because it's clearly the sister is very uh-huh. much brother um, and they're both completely bonkers and weird. Um, but, you know, is that just as bad? Is that like, I, I think uh-huh. if that's the attempt. I don't know if that was what they meant, but that was my read of it. Huh. Yeah. Can we talk about Jerry Hogarth for a second? She's such a fascinating character, yes. and she's also yes. gender-flipped in a way that makes the show much more female. Because in the comics, you know, Jaron Hogarth is, um, you know, the Iron Fist lawyer um, and is a man. And having, you know, yet another female character in a show that's chock full of women, um, and to have her be, you know... I see an interesting. I just and I mean Carrie Ann Moss is awesome. Let's just let's just bow down to the excellence that is Carrie Ann Moss for. A oh yeah, and talk about just what garbage it is that Hollywood never you know did enough with her after the Matrix movies because that is mm-hmm. nonsense. I mean really just nonsense, right? If she if the Matrix was coming out today, she like Emily Blunt would have like a whole string of things lined up and would be interesting and exciting and we would feel really good about it and instead we've had to wait all of these years for Carrie Ann Moss to have something else that's worthy of her talent. Such garbage. Mm-hmm. Totally. I feel like she's got some sexual tension with Jess, incidentally. I don't know if that's something which comes up later. But like the joy that Jaren has when Jess says that she will owe her a favor, like when 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 Jess first was it says I I I will owe you a favor, I thought Jaren was gonna just be like well, you already do, or like, huh, a big thanks there. You like, you work for me. But no, instead Hogarth was like very gleeful at that prospect, and that's not what how I expected that conversation to go at all. Yeah, I didn't necessarily read that as sexual, but this is, you know, as you mentioned before, this is a series that's supposed to really sort of crave power and control. And I don't know yeah. that control or, you know, having you know, Jessica owe her something is necessarily inherently sexual, but that doesn't mean that it isn't pleasurable. Sorry, no, I wasn't, yeah, I'm sorry, I wasn't, I was conflating two different conversations I had up in my head. You know, that one I didn't read in that way particular, but I do feel like in a lot of the conversations, I feel like there is something else going on. That doesn't, that was not specific to that particular conversation, but like, I felt like the way she was impressed and wishing that she had been present to see Jess, like, getting, going after Spheris, for example, the, um, the strip club owner in the first episode, like the way she talks about wanting to, her, her being impressed with her powers, and she says, like, I wish I could have been there to see it, was sort of interesting to me. This is the, sort of the general tenor of their conversations. But, yeah, I don't think that the favorite thing has to be read in that light at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, you know, Jerry is someone who enjoys having control, right? And 
Jessica's was very valuable to her, but not particularly under her control. And so, mm. you know, watching them sort of spar around each other. I mean, Jessica is someone for Jerry to try to wrangle, right? But she's also mm. someone who makes her feel a little out of control in ways that are interesting to her. Mm. That's a good point. I also find um, that the Hogarth character being, you know, gender-flipped is interesting in a lot of the series is gender-flipped. You've got, you know, Luke being the one, you know, the wife is the cheating one on Luke, and he's the one that's completely unaware. Um, you've got Hogarth again cheating um, on her wife, where you'd maybe see that normally as, and I think a stereotypical, most Hollywood way, where you'd see the, you know, the male character cheating on their on their wife. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a very, like, the entire series is very gender-flipped as a whole, you know, down to, like, even those those small plot lines. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it, no, I thought it was interesting. I, this one, you see Luke playing like, like I didn't know. I wouldn't do this. Uh, where it's something like, I feel like I've seen that scene with women making that statement God knows how many times. Um, yeah. So to see him, like, almost refreshing in a weird way. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It was interesting to see um, the woman who Luke had been hooking up with calling Jessica out on her being a stalker, basically, and how having hired herself. Yeah, I, that, I don't think that necessarily was an obvious answer to what happened. Like, the woman, that the woman figured it out that way and worded it that way shows some thought on her part because she could have read it and she could have said, oh, well, maybe somebody else hired her or something like that. I don't know. But I think yeah, we learned yeah. here. Since, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I guess I think we also sort of learn here, essentially, that, like, it's, you know, just hired herself to follow Luke because she was wanted to know what had happened to that woman who had died in the bus crash, and that woman is the woman who, who, who had been in the relationship with Luke, unless I'm completely following things wrong. Um, More will be revealed. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so here's something that's not about... I also going to go with. I also thought that was another like a step in the controlling thing because again you had Kilgrave who is stalking Jess in many ways as well. You know, in not many ways is stalking Jess um, as well. And then here she's doing this to Luke. You know, I, I, I again I just I feel like the writers were doing some of this on purpose to be to like have multiple people doing pretty much the same things but to different degrees. Like it was just another example yeah. of that. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's unnerving, and the question is, yeah. you know, what lines are appropriate or okay or, you know, And that's my what reading. does it mean? Like, yeah. I think that they want us to question that is, like, is one worse than the other, and is any of this appropriate? And, um, you know, that's just, it's just the vibe I got. Like, I really, I'd love to ask the writers these questions at some point. Some panel, maybe. Yeah. I want to yeah, talk no, real quick really... about Jessica. Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Keep going. No, no, keep going. Oh. I want to talk real quick about Jessica's uniform. And I do say uniform. And I think by episode two, and also just having looked at her in the comics, like, she kind of has one outfit. And it's as specific and kind of iconic as a superhero outfit is, in a way. It's just that it's also a disguise of normalcy. 
Like that black mm. jacket, gray tank top, blue jeans combination, which was period appropriate when it was invented in the year 2000 and is period appropriate in the year 2015, which is a lot of fashion years later, I might add, um, is mm. also just like such a standard New York girl outfit. Like, I mean, only upon mentioning this to you do I feel like, eh, you know what, maybe that's not super generic for people living in other parts of the country. But for New York City, that's like the most generic woman outfit you can possibly come up with for a woman her age, and it helps make her invisible. Mm-hmm. But it's also like the yeah. only thing she wears. Well, it's not just that it's a generic New York outfit. It's the like laundry day outfit. It's the I am not going to an effort to make myself look pretty for you outfit. It's the, you know, I'm running out for quarters for the laundry machine outfit. It's very much an outfit that's not about dressing up for public consumption or even sort of for male observation, right? It's an outfit that is very much about disdaining fashion and distinctiveness. Um, and so it's not just that it's a New York outfit, but it's an outfit that is explicitly sort of not about being pleasing in any way. She has a great moment about that with the repairman on this episode who will, or like basically does one of those, you should smile because I'm talking to you and I'm a man lines on her except in his native tongue and she calls out saying he says like you know a rude girl was a lonely girl and she says i'm counting on it which is such a great retort yeah yeah no i uh i appreciate her crankiness uh, <laughs> and the smile stuff is uh yeah that's something that we'll see more of i think it's one of the really important messages from the show so far in general So you don't have to perform. Mm. Yeah, although, you know, we see people reacting in different ways, right? Like, Jessica very much doesn't perform, and Trish is this much more sort of polished, together, presentable personality. And, you know, maybe that is about the outside world, but it's also about themselves internally as well. Mm. Good point. Um, when when Hope says you should kill yourself, do you feel like she's channeling Kilgrave, or is she just that lost herself? Or how did you how did you take that line? I totally took that. It's like her being Kilgraved. Um, yeah, mm. I'm not sure. I well, don't I? I go back and forth on this, like. We see other instances in the future where, where Kilgrave sends a message. I'm not quite positive that this was a specific message sent, and it wasn't just Hope being like, no, you should kill yourself because I want to kill myself. Like, I I, I read it both ways. Mm, it's really creepy, no matter what. It's super creepy, the way it's delivered and yeah. everything about it. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure. That's one thing in the... the even watching it a second time, I still don't know what the answer is. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's definitely unnerving. Um, it's, very, it's very unsettling. Do you have any particular thoughts about the scene where Kilgrave um, in, infiltrates the neighbor's apartment? It's shot really interestingly. And Squid, mm. the whole thing is fucking terrifying. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think is really interesting is uh, and this is the second episode, like, 
in the first episode, Hope tells Jessica because she couldn't leave that she wet the bed. And um, in this episode, you know, Kilgrave basically makes the little girl, you know, like urinate on herself in the closet. And that's an interesting, I mean, the series has not been super sexually explicit so far, but that's something that's happened in both episodes and is so degrading and upsetting. It really got to me um, mm-hmm. in both of those cases, right? Because it's like, it's, I mean, it harkens back to infancy. It's very much a walk. That's, you know, that is one of the first ways that we learn to control ourselves, right? And so that Kilgrave is taking that elemental thing away from his victims is, I think I found that particular to be particularly upsetting. Yeah, the I thought it was like really that and the other thing that really stands out to me that that comes up a few times is the mention of jumping. We're hopefully she was yeah. talking to Jessica and being like, you know, do you jump well? And I know that yeah. this is a it's a it's a fetish. Like there's actually a fetish of watching of men watching women jump, and I don't know oh, if that has really? any, Yeah, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But I, mean, I, I know guess there's, there's a fetish for everything, but man, oh, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> was it Rule Thirty Three or whatever the hell it is? Um, no, that'll be Rule. I'll, go, I'll get back to you. I think. Whoop! Uh, it's the thing of like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's a whole other conversation. Um, but yeah, and, and like comes up, and it comes up again. Another point where I was just wondering, like, is, are they hinting at something? Like, kind of like a little off. I mean, obviously it's off, but um, there's that, and then like the pool, like it just comes up multiple times, which I think find that like really there's got to be a reason that it's brought up multiple times. Well, I think mm-hmm. it shows why he kidnapped, why he kidnapped Hope. He kidnapped Hope because he was. A jumper, and that yeah. him trying to get the next best thing to Jessica. Mm. Yeah. Although we don't know how much he knows about Jessica's powers, right? It's not really clear at this point. No, they haven't really oh. gone that part, right? Like it's like clear we that's know why... he knows that she has powers, but we don't know if he knows like the details. Yeah, and we like Hope says like that's why he chose her is because she could jump like or hints at it, but it's just a weird hmm. thing to focus on. Like such a weird thing. Like why <laughs> wouldn't he choose a bodybuilder? Like clearly Jessica's strong. Like why is it jumping? It's the I it's it, it I don't know <gasps> why that ooh, stuck out. Ooh ooh, the expression jumping at your command, right? Like that's an expression. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that might be an answer. Yeah, I mean, I also just think it's, like, this mundane thing. It almost reminds me of, like, a kid bouncing a ball up and down in this sort of desultory fashion, you know. Kilgrave is someone who, you know, he has these sort of rituals, but he must be bored, right? He already knows what's going to happen to him all of the time. There's never, you know, or he knows that he has complete control over what happens to him. And so there's almost something, you know, it's, from Hope's perspective, it's horrifying, but it's also just incredibly boring sounding, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's it. It's also that it's you know like that. It is like the thing that he did in the comics, and it's so it's so creepy because it's 
it is not conventionally sexual, but it's completely controlling and like using somebody as a toy. Yeah. You know, this is this is the first episode where we really see two male victims of Kilgrave. You know, the ambulance yes. driver and the doctor. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's something that I like a lot about the series, that it, and one of the things that I think makes it really useful as a metaphor for sexual assault is that it's very invested early on in the idea that men can be victims too, right? That, you know, if rape is a crime of power rather than a sexual crime, then of course it makes sense that men would be victims even though they are rarely talked about as victims of sexual assault outside the context of something like, you know, child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also find it interesting with the men that it was because he needed something from them, whereas the women was everything. So, like, the one guy he needed his kidney, and then the other guy he needed to perform surgery. Um, Yeah. So, like, there was just, you know, and then the women, it was clearly a, you are a toy or plaything for me. Um, Yeah, although I think that's... um, that's something that broadens in subsequent episodes. So I'm not yeah. sure that we yeah we can't necessarily say that's a rule <laughs> for how Kilgrave approaches okay. male or female victims. But it was good to see that highlighted at this point in the series, you know, and made very explicit. And you know, the doctor says when she says, "What do you have to lose?" and the doctor says, "My mind?" Question mark. You know. Um, yeah. It was really powerful and sad. Yeah, and I mean. You know, just that that reminder, that sort of terror, you know, and one of the things I appreciate about this point in the series is that we don't actually have to see Kilgrave do anything to understand just how horrible his impact is on other people, you know. The show is practicing um, a certain restraint at this point that I appreciate, especially after the, some of the violence of Daredevil. I mean, I will admit mm. I'm just not a huge fan of super graphic violence, and so at least in the early going, having a break from that was a real relief. Well, I think the other is, it's interesting in two two aspects is, uh, one, by not seeing Kilgrave and have it build up, it kind of pl- it plays off that horror build up of, you know, the, the mass killer eventually shows up down the line. But the other is, with the scene of the doctor and Jessica going to the, um, to the school, and the, yeah. the professor, the professor, doctor, professor starts running, shows how obsessive Kilgrave is about her without, like, really emphasizing it. Still the the shark fin in the water with, you know, the, the violins going, um, where you, you have to think about it, like, oh, my God, this guy knows Jessica because he's seen pictures of her. Like, how many freaking pictures does Kilgrave have of, the, of her? Like, how obsessed is is he? It's it's really subtle in that horror movie aspect. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really. Um, one thing I also appreciate is just the music over the credits, which is very atonal and unnerving. Um, yeah. It's just it's a really great choice, and because each episode starts with the credits, um, it really I think sort of gets you back in that mode. So. Mm. It's very disconcerting. I really, I really like that. It shows a lot of care. Do you mean the credits at the end of the episode music? No, no, at the beginning. Huh. I I love the opening credit music, but I thought of it as being very like as being very um, menacing, but very melodic. Like mm. 
No, I actually found it very sort of discordant and sort of jangly. Not, I mean, not jangly musically, but it left my nerves all sort of on edge every time. Yeah, certainly, certainly when the strings kick in, it's like really like shark music. I think was a good description. It was a good comparison. Yeah. I'm at this point have a Pavlov uh, reaction to it. I've watched the episode so many times. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I, uh, I hear you having sort of played through all 13 of them. Yeah, by the time like you get towards the end, you're just like, oh my god, it's the music. I know it's coming, and you're like tense just from the music. Um, yeah. <laughs> Good. So upsetting. Ah! Well, so the other, yeah. and I. Alani, you kind of brought it up in the, in our last episode when we talked about it. Was this episode also continues her uh, narrative, like her her thought bubble narrative out loud, um, playing off of that like noirish uh, vibe heavily in the show, um, and it's something that dies off, I think, eventually, but it's still playing hmm. very like it's still prevalent in the episode. Um, and it, I, it almost like the first episode, it happens a lot. And then towards the end, it happens a lot. And this one, I feel like it starts in the beginning and it, and it kind of dies off a bit as kind of like as Jessica's being revealed, as Luke's being revealed, that narrative, uh, tool is like used less and less. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is that it's training the audience, right? I mean, we're so used to seeing female characters or, you know, female characters are so often presented to us as sort of supporting characters um, that, you know, I think having that sort of bubble narrative is a reminder, like, this is the perspective that this story is being told from. This is the person whose experience matters. This is the character we're going to be following. And so once they sort of trained you to do that, they don't need to keep doing it. Um and I think it's probably wise to fade it off a little bit just because it's such a noir cliche, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> hmm. yeah, it's not necessarily a bad one, and in this case it's used interestingly, but, um, you know, it's uh, that interaction between sort of genre convention and what they need to do to sort of teach you what kind of show you're watching is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, definitely is a cliche thing. Um so I, I, I know we wanted to kind of keep this to an hour. Is there any other things you wanted to bring up, Alyssa? You know, Is there any other notes or... Uh, I mean, another thing I wanted to say, I just I think the cast in this is so great. I mean, I don't know if either of you watched The Good Wife, but Mike Coulter, who plays Luke Cage, is in that and plays a similar, very sort of interesting, not quite what you'd expect character. And it's really, it's great to see, you know, that eye for casting. To have, you know, Carrie Ann Moss, to have Robin Weigert playing... Jerry's wife, you know, there's just a lot of sort of deep cut smart casting here. Um, but I'm particularly glad to see Coulter get this kind of break because he's outstanding. Yeah, I think he really is going to be able to carry his own series easily after this. Yeah, no, it's good. It's going to be exciting to see. It's uh, on the second you viewing. Have- I- I was saying, notice that his his acting is very subtle. Like you, you, it's a very subtle thing, and you have to pay attention to it. And that yeah. a lot of said is just how he says things. Like you get the sense of, you know, he just wants to be left alone and run his bar, and that's it. He's clearly seen some shit. He just wants to move on, and you know, get on with his life. And it, he never yeah. says it, but it's in the look that he gives when he says other things. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Do you have any thoughts about about um, about Ritter in her in terms of her performance and her role? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's been interesting is that she is someone who has been sort of oriented towards comedy in the past couple of years, and she's such a great dramatic actress. I mean, she has these big, wide-open features and a really flexible face in a lot of ways. She can do a lot with that. And, you know, it's just, it's. I love watching her work. Did you guys watch Breaking Bad? I did not. Yeah, that's one she's, that's one watch. She's in the second season of Breaking Bad playing a character who, she's played a drug addict, and she's just amazing. She is sort of morally complex, really heartbreaking in a lot of ways. Um, and you really sympathize with her character while still really seeing the ugliness in that character as a person, and it's just, it's really powerful. I, you know, I'm, again, as with my culture, I'm glad she's getting to do something that's just worthy of the full palette of her talent. Mm. Yeah, it's really rare to have a female role where you're allowed to be unlikable in these ways as well. I mean, she is also likable in some ways, but she's not an easy character. Yeah. And she's certainly not out trying to please anybody. Exactly. It's really refreshing. She she has enough of her own stuff going on, and that's putting it mildly, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That, That would... That could easily be her her catchphrase that she has a lot of her own stuff going on. <laughs> exactly. It, it, you know, it's funny because it's sort of like we comics is full of detectives who aren't very good at detecting things, and yeah. we do get to see in these first two episodes. Like, even though you know she seems to have gotten into the detective business for in a sort of out of desperation, she does have detective skills, and we get to see her put those to work in both episodes so far. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. I have been trying to, you know, to get you booked on our podcast for a while as a huge fan of yours, and we would love to have you back anytime. Can I call dibs on uh, episode eight? Please on it. It's, uh, it's on the list. All right. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings, so I would love to join you guys again. <laughs> awesome. We're all about thoughts and feelings. We, okay, well, we're, we have a spreadsheet of future guest stuff, so we'll mark you in for episode eight. No problem. Sounds good. Uh, I'll talk to you guys then. Well, before oh, wait, you go, real quick, we just ask people. <laughs> yeah, we, we want to give you a platform for you to uh, pitch your stuff. So um, you're a guest, but we feel like you should also be able to uh, tell people where they can find you and where they can like read your stuff and all that fun oh, thing. So. You guys are the sweetest. I write the Act 4 column for the Washington Post opinion section. There's like a little cartoon of my face and everything. I am wearing glasses and have the world's biggest smile. So if you go to WashingtonPost.com <laughs> slash opinions and click on the girl who looks like me, you'll find my writing. I also spend a lot of time hanging out on Twitter at, at Alyssa Rosenberg. And uh, I tweet back unless you're weird or mean. So uh, come hang out. I would I would love to keep talking to all of you. Awesome. Thank you again. Yes. Have a good appreciate day. Appreciate it. And we'll talk to you in episode Bye, guys. Yep. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. So that's going to wrap up our second episode. Two episodes down. Like 11 more to go. Uh, so we've got yeah. another, <laughs> another one coming up Thursday. We're going to crank out another one. 
Uh, would you like to say who's joining us for this one? Sure. Um, on Thursday, we'll be joined by Amanda Marcotte. She is an awesome feminist blogger and pop culture writer who I've known for a long time and have not had on a podcast yet either. So you can see a recurring theme of these most recent guests. Um, uh, you know, we, we both have spoken about Game of Thrones stuff quite a bit, and she's been really enamored with Jessica Jones series and has also recently started reading a lot more comics. Uh, so I think she'll be a really fascinating guest for us to have to talk about episode three. Um, yeah, Amanda she Marcotte. Also, she also does some stuff on Doctor Who, too, so that should be pretty entertaining. Oh, that's right, Doctor Who. Yep, yeah. Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, so that's yeah. going to be Thursday at 9 p.m. Um, if you are listening through Blog Talk Radio, blogtalkradio.com slash graphicpolicy, the next episode is already loaded up, and uh, you can you know click a reminder there. Uh, for those who want to listen again, came in late, uh, want to share this with other friends, uh, you know, enjoy the awesomeness that this was so much, uh, you can do so. Uh, it will be on Blog Talk Radio and Archive uh, a little bit after this show ends. Uh, it will also be on iTunes and Stitcher, and then tomorrow it will be loaded up onto uh, SoundCloud. So you'll have your options to listen to it again and again and share it around, which we appreciate if you do. Um other than that, I think that's everything on our end. Um, you can listen to us again Thursday at 9 p.m. when we will be talking the third episode of Jessica Jones on the next episode of Jonesing for Jessica. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Thanks for listening and keep it geeky.